good morning, Icon. Good morning. If you will remain standing, uh, I'm going to read our scripture reading for today. Uh, I'm going to do a, a pastoral prayer for our mothers. Happy Mother's Day. Everybody say it. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. Yes. And then we'll jump in. Our scripture reading for today comes out of Revelation 1, starting in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace." And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for today, not just another Sunday, as wonderful as that is, but a Sunday where we get to celebrate our mothers and celebrate the gift that they have been and the gift they continue to be to their children. And so, Father, I, I thank you for each and every mother that is in this room. I thank you that you have given them the gift of a child. A child is a gift from you, Father. Thank you that you have given them that gift, and I, I pray that you would give them strength, God. You'd give them love and patience and endurance, and for every mother in here who right now is struggling, God, that you would, you would grant them a sense of peace in the long-term outlook of their children's life, that they would be able to see that they are faithful today just by loving and reconciling and repairing and teaching all the things that it takes to be a mother. They are faithful today, and I pray that they would trust you with the outcome of all of that work and all of that effort. Father, I, I pray that for those in this room who long to be mothers and have not been yet. Father, we want to acknowledge that pain, and I ask that those women in this room who are experiencing that right now, that they would feel uniquely seen by you, loved by you, that that theme of a desire for motherhood and yet the want of children is a theme all throughout scripture. You know that pain. You've ministered to women in that pain and I pray that you would minister to them today. For those who have not been able to conceive, God, would you give them grace and peace. 
for the mothers in this room who have lost a child through miscarriage. God, I pray that you would, that you would help them, that you would encourage them, that you would help them to know that they are mothers and that that pain that continues to be there that may not ever go away, I just pray that you would be a consistent balm to that wound and that you would give the gift of children. So Father, I praise you for mothers. I praise you for the desire for motherhood and ask that any woman here who desires that gift, that you would give that to them in your grace. And now, Father, as we turn to to look at Jesus, I just simply pray that you would give us a sight of him, God. There's so much about him in this text that we're just going to run through, and I pray that you would give us a vision of Jesus, that you give us fresh strength in what we see in him. God, would you unite your power with my weak words today? and help us to see Jesus. It's in his name that I ask these things. Amen. When you are in trouble, what do you need? When you sense pressure or pain or trial, what is it that you need? And I'm not just asking that rhetorically, although I don't want you to answer out loud. I do want you to reflect on that for a moment. When you are in pain, when you are in trouble or suffering has come into your life, some sort of pressure, what is it that you think you really need in that moment? Not just to to, to, to get over with the pain, but to get through it. What would help you get through? My guess is that there's a, a number of things floating around in our heads today. Maybe we maybe we think we need comfort. In times that press us, we just need to find what can make us feel better. Maybe we just need time, time to process and to recoup. Maybe we need to do something like practice gratitude, you know? We always talk about that as Christians. Just be grateful for what you do have. Well, that that, that might help. All of that can be true. But here's one thing that as I've reflected this week on my own times of pain and my own times of suffering, the one thing that I really felt like I needed in that moment was control, (laughs) which is really a a painful irony because that's the one thing that we genuinely do not have and cannot own no matter what we do. But, But in our times of pressing and of pressure or of trial, it's not always that we need to be the ones who own that control. I think we just need to know that someone has control, that someone somewhere has the reins on life, that control isn't lost in our world. We just need to know and be convinced that someone is keeping watch over the guardrails and making sure that even though pain is happening, our lives and our world is still headed towards something good. We can't stand the idea of purposelessness, right? Especially in suffering. The idea that there's no purpose There's no real control in the universe that all we really have is just this God of chance, which is a tyrant for our lives. We can't stand that, which is why even in our secular age, which supposedly has pushed away religion, has actually personified and deified the universe. (laughs) 
We need someone or something to be in control. We need something to give us the comfort of purpose. Life lived under the God of chance is unlivable and unviable and untenable. Nothing sucks the energy out of the human spirit more painfully than a life, a world, or a story that has no plot line. We have to know that something is still going on. To make it through life, we have to know that even in our times of suffering, the plot line has not been lost. That someone has control and that that someone is trustworthy. We need to know that. And friends, so did the original hearers of this book of Revelation. Last week, we we explored some of the the context in which Revelation was written and who exactly it was written to. And if you remember, it was written to seven churches in the province of Asia, and most likely around the year 96 AD, which means this. It had been 64 years after Jesus died, raised from the grave, and ascended to heaven. 64 years. Years And that 64 years, friends, was just enough time for things to go horribly wrong for the church. Horribly wrong. At at, at this point in the church's history, it seemed as though everything was falling apart. That 64 years between Jesus' ascension and the book of Revelation had held more persecution more heresy, more apostasy, more hardship than could have ever been imagined. I mean, for a significant portion of that time, the Roman emperor Nero, if you know anything about him, had been in power. And Nero made it his, one of his personal missions to make sure to snuff out this small sect called Christianity. And he was almost successful. Under Nero's reign, the apostle Paul, beheaded. The Apostle Peter, crucified upside down. The Apostle James, thrown off the temple to his death. Or Timothy, Paul's son in the faith, beaten to death. Things had been falling apart. Nero had run through this little sect called Christianity and tried to destroy it, destroy it with such a vicious power. I mean, he would take the bodies of martyred Christians and hang them as lamps for his luxurious parties. Light them on fire in order to light his hedonistic parties. That 64 years, it seemed like everything had gone wrong. It didn't seem like it could get any worse. But then, around 90 AD, Nero was replaced by Domitian. And Domitian, like every other tyrant, was a profoundly insecure man who took out his grasp for power on the weakest. His persecution of Christians surpassed even that of Nero. In 92 AD, Domitian had 40,000 Christians killed in one year. And I know that, you know, 40,000, it's like, yeah, that's a big number, but now it's like 7 billion people in the world, so it seems kind of small. This was at a time where Christianity was tiny. Can you imagine what a, what a portion of 40,000 Christians dead would have felt like to this church? And then not only that, but then Domitian sends 
the last living disciple of Jesus, the Apostle John, to a prisoner's island to live out his days bleaching on the rocks. The 64 years between Jesus' ascension and this letter called Revelation was just enough time for things to go horrifically wrong. And these remaining Christians in the seven churches in Asia had to be reconsidering their commitment to Jesus. Had to be rethinking this whole thing. Was this the way that it was all supposed to go? This 64 years of terror, Jesus left his disciples saying that all authority in heaven on earth has been given to him. Well, how in the world can these meager and persecuted Christians believe that Jesus has authority when the whole world around them is out to kill them and they're successful at it? To bring it back to what I said before, had the plot line of Christianity been lost? Was there any sense of purpose within all of the persecution? Or were things just under the the slow unraveling mystery of chance? Here it is. Here's the most important question of all. Was Jesus able to do anything about this? This mass persecution, this hardship, this trial, was Jesus strong or was he, did he turn out to just be some nice Galilean shepherd who taught everyone to be loving and God did some cool things through? Was Jesus able to meet the moment of their pain? Was Jesus big enough? One of the, one of the things to know in the early church is that they really had to learn early on that Jesus was meek and mild. Everyone, ex- everyone expected a, a savior who was mighty and powerful, who could conquer through the sword. And so in the beginning of Christianity, it took great effort and faith to adjust their perspective to see that much of the strength of Jesus lay within his humility and meekness. And yet at this point in 96 AD, they needed the other aspect of who Jesus is. Jesus is gentle and meek and humble And that is something we all so desperately need. But what they also needed in this moment of pressure and persecution was a Jesus that was strong. Not just gentle and kind, loving, flowers in his hair, blue eyes and long hair. No, they needed a Jesus who was strong, who could meet the moment of their pain. A Jesus who is actually in control, who is actually bigger than the persecution and the pressures that they were going through. Does anybody else feel that? Does anybody else ever feel that we just need Jesus to be strong? We just need some strength from him. I think we always need two things from Jesus in in seeing these things in Jesus. The first thing we need from Jesus is the the one thing that we tend to emphasize most, his gentle grace. And everything I'm about to preach here is not in contradiction to his gentle grace. We need the gentleness of Jesus to be greater than our masochistic shame that we carry all the time. We need the gentleness of Jesus 
We need him to treat us with grace. We need him to pick up our chins while our heads are hanging low in shame. But just as much as we need his gentleness and his grace to be bigger than our shame, friends, we also need his strength and his glory to be bigger than our problems and our pain. We need a Jesus that can meet the moment. Sometimes we just need a Jesus that is strong. We praise him and we cherish him as the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. The lamb that willingly offered himself up for our sins, but we also need him to be the lion who roars sometimes. And that's what we get in the book of Revelation, that thankfully Jesus is both, lion and lamb. And today, we'll get to see a picture of the strength of Jesus. We can see in this text what you might call the cosmic Christ. So let me set it up like this. The picture of Jesus put forward in this text is the picture that these original hearers will need in their minds in order to hear everything that follows in the rest of this letter. This vision of Jesus sets up his authority, his reliability, his credibility, all necessary things in order for him to be listened to throughout the rest of this letter. So what we're going to do is we're going we're to jump in and we're just going to do a fire hose of this vision of Jesus, okay? All right, thanks, pal. <laughs> we're going to explore this unique vision of Jesus. So for those of you who, who need some structure, here's what we're going to do. We're going to run through this vision that, that is put forward here. And again, it might feel like a fire hose at first, but near the end, we'll kind of slow down and, and chat a little bit about what this means for us. Okay, you ready? The vision. The first thing we see about Jesus is his location. He says this, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. John starts off this vision saying that he saw seven lampstands, which later in the text we'll see describe and represent the seven churches that this letter is written to. And he sees in the midst of these lampstands one like a son of man. Jesus is walking among these churches. Already, these Christians are hearing something they need. Though it had been 64 years since Jesus ascended to heaven, what John sees here and says here is that his ascension never once meant distance. Though Jesus had accomplished all that he came to accomplish, and as we'll see later in the text, has won the victory over sin and death, Jesus is not relaxing with his feet up. He's not inattentive, just being like, all right, Holy Spirit, you got the rest from here, you know? You take it from here. No, Jesus is in the middle of these churches. He did not leave his people when he ascended to heaven, but rather continues to walk in their midst. He's not looking on from afar, He's not distantly removed from their situation and the status of their faith, but rather he is walking in the midst of these persecuted churches, keeping a close watch on how they are. Jesus is present with these persecuted Christians. 
And as he's walking in the midst of these churches, he's wearing a, a very specific garment, right? John says that he sees this Jesus with a, a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. Now, now, clothing often gives us an idea of the role of a person, right? If you see someone with a, a long white lab jacket, you might think, doctor. If you see someone in blue with a badge, you might think, police officer, cop, yeah, okay, police officer. Put some respect on it. Just kidding. <laughs> well, when these Christians would have heard long robe and golden sash, they would have thought priest. These are priestly garments that Jesus is wearing, showing that after he's finished his work through the cross and through the resurrection, he still remains at work for his people through the role of priest. Now, this is important for these suffering Christians in the seven churches because the role of a priest is meant to be a bridge builder. A, a priest is someone who presents God to us and us to God, which would be such a calming and soothing truth for these fumbling, persecuted Christians that though they are tempted to walk away because of the pressures of their world, they're not cast off because of their temptations. They have someone representing them before God. The weakness and the lack of resilient faithfulness that these Christians have, their fragility, is not something that they have to hide from God. Rather, what they see here is that they have someone whose role it is to be a bridge builder. Jesus, walking in the midst of his churches, is functioning as priest, always building a bridge between God and weak, faltering, fragile disciples. That's a wonderful truth for these stumbling Christians. Next, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. So here, Jesus has, does have probably long hair, right? I'm trying to grow up my hair to look like Jesus. Does it look okay? Nailed it? Who was that? <laughs> he has long white hair. Now, when you hear phrases like white wool or like snow, sometimes in scripture it's talking about purity. It's, it's meant to symbolize or give an image of, of what is pure. But also in scripture, white hair or gray hair is meant to symbolize wisdom. Wisdom that has, a, has been achieved through old age. And Jesus here has hair that is white as snow, meant to portray that he possesses great wisdom. Great wisdom in his dealing with these churches. And again, that's good news for these churches. Wisdom is situational, right? Like the old thing, knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit, but wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad, right? Anybody else heard that? That's the first time you've heard that? Okay. Write that one down. Wisdom is situational. It's situational knowledge wrought by experience. It's not just knowing something. It's not that, that, that Jesus just knows a lot, but that he has great wisdom that he's able to apply to each and every situation that these churches are in. That the status and the situation of these Christians 
is not too complex for Jesus. It's not a code that he can't crack. Endurance in the Christian life for these churches is not something too hard for Jesus to figure out. Their situation is not too complex for him. He knows what to do, and he knows how to endure. He's wise. And his eyes are like a flame of fire. Now, fire actually does, in the scriptures, represent or symbolize purity. There's often times where our, our faith is described as gold, where fire is coming to pure, that, you know, suffering is this fire that purifies our faith, burning away the, the dross. Fire is meant to symbolize purity. And Jesus here, his eyes are like fire, which I think means that he is both pure and purifying. Jesus, in his eyes, is like fire. Now, fire, or eyes are the window to the soul, right? And what we see in that window for Jesus is a pure flame. He himself is pure, not corrupt. That's something alone that we as Christians today could really take great refuge in, and certainly these Christians as well, that there's a kingdom leader who's not corrupt, a kingdom leader whose essence is purity through and through. But not only that, it's not that Jesus just possesses purity himself, but also he is purifying. When Jesus, with his flames of fire, looks at these seven churches, he looks upon them with purifying intent. He looks, as we'll see as we go through chapters two and three, He looks at these churches, he's aware of these churches' situation with the intent of purifying them of some things they need to be purified of. Jesus looks upon them in order to purge what is worldly in them. In chapters two and three, he's gonna talk about a lot of their suffering and what they're going through and the way in which that's meant to purify their faith, which again, is a word for us as well. That suffering is not something we should just try to get out of, but there might be something that Jesus is seeking to purge, us out, purge out of us, right? Not something we just run from. Jesus is pure and purifying. Next, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. Now, this is an important picture because it connects back to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. So in the book of Daniel, there's actually a few different visions that are very similar to what John sees here. Daniel himself actually sees one like a son of man and begins describing much of what is similar to, similar to this. But there's also another vision in the book of Daniel that the pagan ruler Nebuchadnezzar has. And Nebuchadnezzar has this vision of one like a son of man who has all this great strength and regalia and is just built and his arms are like sapphire and there's all this gold on him. But then the vision ends and says that his feet were made of clay. And what that vision is saying is that Nebuchadnezzar, everything you have, the superstructure of your beauty can't be supported because you don't have a foundation for your kingdom. And the opposite is shown here for Jesus. (laughs) That the superstructure of his kingdom is not built on clay the reliability and foundation of who he is and what his rule will be like is strong and founded upon 
bronze, burnished bronze, not going to give way. Jesus is not top-heavy. Jesus is not one of those guys who just does, what's it called again? Upper arm, yeah. I don't really, I don't really work out. So. <laughs> He's not one of those top-heavy guys who you could just push over, you know, because they don't, they don't never do leg bay. That's what I'm trying to, pr- <laughs> that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Jesus and his foundation, his kingdom, is not just all pomp and thrill, but is actually founded upon a solid foundation that will not give way. Jesus' kingdom is secure. And it says that his voice is like the roar of many waters. That his voice is not timid. We can learn much about a person based off of how they speak, right? Much is communicated in the tone of what they say. Even right now, you are picking up on my tone. We hear things, not just as words, but through the tone that they are said. And here, Jesus in his voice is like the roar of many waters, There is strength in his voice. He is not timid. He doesn't back away from speaking the truth in hard situations. He doesn't whisper truth. His voice is like the roar of many waters. And then he holds within his right hand seven stars. Now, this one is wonderful. Because later, as we read in the text... Those seven stars were given the interpretation for it, that it's the seven angels or seven representatives for the seven churches. But also, there's a little bit of a double entendre here. In the the minds of these hearers who originally heard this vision and this letter, the seven stars were the planets that were then known. They only knew about seven planets that they could see in the sky at that point. And so this idea is that there's, there's seven stars, these seven planets, and much of pagan religion, not unlike our day, was giving credence and credibility to the movement of these stars in order to direct life. That many people looked to the stars in order to see control for their life or predict what would happen or to have some, again, not unlike what we see today. And here, Jesus is saying... Not only the seven angels, but also through the double entendre, everything that you think you can look to for control, it's actually in my hand. All the planets that you look to in order to understand life, in order to gain some sense of control in a chaotic universe, those things are in my hand. And not only that, they're in my right hand. They're, They're in what I'm capable, they're in my space of capability. Jesus is able to control. He is over everything. He is capable of controlling our universe and our world and our life, which means for these Christians, that original question of has the plot line of Christianity been lost is a no. Jesus is in control. Jesus has been watching over this church, over these churches for the last 64 years at this time, has been watching over world history and is perfectly in control. And finally, The last piece of this vision is that Jesus has a sharp tongue. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. Now, the the sword that's spoken of here is actually interesting because when we hear sword, when we hear a sword coming out of someone's mouth, we think it's like this long, right? No, the, the, the Greek word for this sword here is actually signifying more of a dagger. It's a short sword that comes out of the mouth of Jesus, which means this. 
Everything that he speaks to his people is not from afar. Whatever cutting word he has to say to his church that will pierce their hearts, Jesus always comes close for that. Jesus always comes face to face when he's got to say a hard word to his church. And his face was brilliant. As bright as the sun in full strength. This vision ends with the brilliant beauty of Jesus shown to be as strong and as bright and as compelling as the greatest wonder of nature, the sun in full strength, the one thing you can't look at for too long because it's so bright. That is the face of Jesus. That is not meek and mild Galilean shepherd. That is not blue eyes, long blonde hair, Jesus that, many, that comes into many of our minds. That is a Jesus of strength. That is a Jesus that is in control, that is worth looking to, friends. Why don't you just take a breath with me? Take a breath. That was a lot. I'm not hearing you take a breath. Take a breath. What could this mean for these original hearers at the, in these seven churches? A strong Jesus like this. Well, last week, one of the most important things that we discussed as we were setting up some principles to interpret the book of Revelation, we talked about the genres of this book. And one of them that we talked about is that Revelation is written in the genre of apocalypse. And like I said last week, whenever we hear apocalypse, we think calamity, disaster. You know, when the streets were empty from COVID-19, everyone is like, this is so apocalyptic. That's not the right word for that. That's a calamity, that's a disaster. Apocalypse, what it actually means is a revealing. Apocalypse is when the curtain gets removed and you now see what was behind the curtain the entire time. Through apocalypse, we are able to see what has always been there, but was previously hidden. We get to see the unseen realities of of our world. And here, friends, this is where it comes down to these seven churches and to us. At the beginning of this book, of this apocalypse, we see that the great unseen reality of the world is a person. The first revelation that we get in the book of Revelation is the cosmic Christ who's always been there, who's always been there, who's always been like that. But now we get the curtain torn back. And friends, can can we be honest together? It is not immediately intuitive that Jesus is what's described here. That's not, to me it's not. It's not immediately intuitive. I couldn't pick that up on my own. Were we to base our assessment of Jesus off of what we immediately see in the world, off our own senses, off our own wisdom, we would be, if we were honest, disappointed with the person of Jesus. If we were to just look at the status of our world, the ways in which things continue to devolve the ways it seems like the church continues, that the gospel of Christ continues to just get despised. 
not unlike these churches here. Were we to just base our assessment of Jesus off of that, we would think that Jesus is indeed that Galilean shepherd who was nice, who was kind, who taught everyone to love, but in the end couldn't really do anything. Often it feels like evil is winning, and it felt to these early churches like evil was winning. And in the midst of that, in the midst of evil making great gains in their world and against them, this peeling back of the curtain of reality comes. Jesus steps forward in order to interrupt what they and we might default to in our thoughts about Jesus. Again, we might think that he's nice, loving, kind, who taught a hateful world to love. We're ready to look at the world, we might default to think that Jesus had great intentions, but not enough power to really follow through on his aspirations for our world. No. This vision peels back the curtain, interrupts our default way of thinking, and shows us the power and glory of Jesus Christ as he is and as he always has been. Can you hear, can you hear that today? I know it takes great faith to believe that and to see that, but can you, can you embrace that this Jesus who is in the midst of his churches, who is full of wisdom and purity, who has a tongue that cuts through, who holds control in his own right hand, that Jesus is the one that is right now. Whatever you're going through, whatever pressure you have, whatever trial, temptation, whatever hardship, that is the Jesus that is. It's not an impotent Jesus just having well wishes for you, that I wish I could help you, I wish I could get you out, I wish I could give you strength. No, it's a Jesus who is strong. This is the cosmic Christ that is. And so it would be wrong of us to think of Jesus in any other way than supreme, even in our trials. That this Christ, as the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper once said, there is not one square inch of the universe over which the risen Christ does not say, mine, and I own it. Christ is over all. It changes the way, friends, that these seven churches walk through persecution and pressure and trial, and it changes it for us. That you have a Jesus worth keeping at the center, worth looking to and trusting in, worth relying and depending upon in everything. In everything that Jesus is going to confront these churches on and call these churches on, he shows himself here that he is reliable. He is worth looking to. And the same is true for us. That he is worth our trust. And when we see Jesus like that, we can obey one of Jesus' first commands in the book of Revelation, which is this. Did you see it? John, understandably, falls as though dead. And then Jesus, though strong and yet always gentle, picks him up with his right hand. 
and gives his first command. Do not be afraid. Literally in the Greek, stop being afraid. When we see this cosmic Christ, this one who is overall, we can answer that command and stop being afraid. Whatever you're afraid of in your discipleship, whatever you're afraid of in the, pro- in, in the trials and pressures of a secular world, you can stop being afraid. And I'm no, for- I'm no foreigner to fear. I know what it's like. I'm not just saying, hey, just stop. Did you ever try that? No. What I'm telling you to, say, what I'm telling you to do is look at Jesus. And then you can stop being afraid. Because Jesus as he ends his little vision, says that he is the first and the last. He is the archetype and he is the telos. He is how things started and he is where everything is headed. He is the archetype and the destiny. He is in between all of it and that he is the living one. I love that phrase. Not just that he's alive. One of the ones who's alive. (laughs) The living one. That though he died for our sins, he is now alive forevermore. This is a Jesus worth trusting and looking to in every bit of our trial and every bit of our pressure, answering his call to not be afraid and to listen to him as he continues to call us to endurance and faith in the pages that follow. And so friends, I, re- I want you to sense today the strength of Jesus for your life. Before before Jesus gets into everything he's going to call these churches to, he gives them a vision of who he is. Meek and mild, certainly, but strong, worth trusting in in all of life. Wise, aware of your complex situation, and yet not stumped on how to walk through it pure and wanting to purify your own faith, in control and having a sharp word for you sometimes that will cut through the heart. This is the cosmic Christ worth looking to. And when we do that, again, friends, we can resist the temptation to fear that pulls us away from him so often. So let's look to this cosmic Christ. And as we go throughout the rest of this letter, remember that this is the one who's speaking to us. This is the one who's calling us to endurance, calling us to resilient faith and discipleship. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the vision of Jesus that you gave John that in your attentive care and loving compassion, you knew what these seven churches needed to see in Jesus and about Jesus in order to hear everything else he's gonna say moving forward. That was unique to them, but it's also for us that we need to see a strong Jesus. If we're gonna be called into resilient faith into enduring in our discipleship, we've got to have a picture of your son that is worth holding on to, that is strong and reliable. So I thank you that your son is strong. 
What a simple truth that is, but if we believed it, could very well revolutionize our life. That the Jesus who walks in our midst, even in this church, in Icon Church, this little lampstand, he is strong. He is with us, and he is able. God, would you give us the faith to believe that and to walk out all the points of discipleship that flow from that truth? Give us, a, give us fresh strength with a vision of who your son is. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us in gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are his.